Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today, my guest is legendary Nashville session drummer Tommy Harden. Tommy has been in Nashville since the early 90s. His live resume includes drumming for Larry Gatlin and the Gatlin Brothers, Ricky Skaggs, as well as touring with Reba McIntyre for 14 years. He currently tours with the legendary country band Alabama. Since getting off the road full-time in the mid-90s, Tommy pursued studio work where he became a top-call A-list studio drummer. Tommy has played on hundreds of recordings for artists such as Alan Jackson, Reba McIntyre, Big and Rich, Waylon Jennings, Jessica Simpson, and has been on number one hits for artists like Justin Moore, Dustin Lynch, and James Otto. Since 1997, he's played on an estimated five to 7,000 sessions. He fronts his own band called Lost Hollow with his wife, Lori. He also has a studio in his house he calls Tommy's Dungeon, where he does drum tracks for clients all over the world. He produces and writes songs. If you're interested in supporting what Zach and I do here at the podcast, you can become a Patreon member. Find us at patreon.com slash working drummer. Any donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content that's provided by our former guests. This content covers a variety of topics, but it's all educational and applicable to the working professional. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can find links to both of these things on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. And while you're there, you can find out more about this episode and the over 300 episodes that we've done over the years. No matter what your platform of choice is for listening to podcasts, giving us a like, a rating, and review always helps us grow. So before we get started, I just want to say thanks to Tommy for hosting me at his studio space. It was really cool to see his space and his drum room and all his gear. Uh, check out Tommy's YouTube channel. Just look up Tommy Harden on YouTube. Lots of great videos. We talk about two songs in this conversation that he's tracked, tracked numerous number one songs, but one of them is Lee Bryce uh, that you'll hear in a, just a few seconds here uh, called Hard to Love. I just love the feel on this. Uh, another song we talk about that comes up halfway in our conversation is a song by James Otto called Just Got Started Loving You. Super great. Uh, so you'll hear a little bit of that and then we get into that conversation. So to check those out uh, wherever you get your tunes. They're just great and it's it's the best of what Nashville has to offer with, with, with country music in particular and uh, showcases a lot of what Tommy does so well. Here you go. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tommy Harden. I have a tendency to pay more attention to the things that I need Sometimes I drink too much, sometimes I test your trust Sometimes I don't know why you stay with me I'm hard to love, hard to love, oh I don't make it easy Well I couldn't do it if I stood where you stood I'm hard to love That you love me good yeah. 
just so people know, like you're hosting me here at your awesome studio, and we just you've been playing tracks for me and showing me gear. And you were mentioning your drum room and how you've been working at it since what? O two. O two. Yeah. So almost twenty years. Yeah. It's uh, it was originally built as a drum room, um, and I had basically just from doing. Uh, you know, I mean, even back then, uh, I had been doing session work full-time since about 97. Uh-huh. So I had a few years under my belt where I I had been going around what we call the campus, which is all the different studios around Nashville. <laughs> um, and, you know, you would play a room and you'd go, ah, this room sounds like, you know, not as very good. This room sounds great. This room sounds insane. And sometimes you would be surprised and it would be... A room that should not sound good but sounds amazing and so a couple of rooms that I really liked um, one was the tracking room which they've sold the building and they're gonna probably tear it down and put condos there of course uh, and they got this stone room in there and it's completely stone stone floor uh, stone walls it's very 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 live too live really for drums mm. but if if you set the drums up in there, open the door, and then they bring these, these like, you know, foot thick, uh, they look like mattress foams or something, and they put them in the corner, and they put them kind of around, and they tame the room down just a little bit. All of a sudden, now you've got this rock and roll room that's mind-blowing. So that's one of the rooms that I kind of... It's kind of like gobos, but yeah, but more absorbent. Yeah. Just just big old four by eight pieces of foam, and they put them all over the yeah. place. And I mean, I cut, uh, I cut uh, some number one records in that room. Uh, Kit Moore, uh, I, I did some tracking for him. Uh, you know, played on uh, a couple songs called one called uh, something about a truck and beer money. Yeah, which I think are very, very cool songs. And I think we cut them in that room. Um, the other room that surprised me was so Tom Bukovac bought this house. But he bought it from Scott and, and uh, Scott Parker, uh, and basically they had taken their garage and made the studio. And they had they had like a uh, a Trident AB in there, and they had this drum kit in this little. I mean, it was probably smaller than the room we're in. We're in the like a little ten by ten room, mm-hmm. probably smaller than this room, and. Uh, and the ceiling was kind of sort of high in places, and it was kind of off, you know, irregular, I guess. But so I'm, I'm listening, and I'm playing the, these drums, and I'm thinking, this room probably smokes 80% of the drum rooms. Wow. Yeah. And I'm like, why? Why does this room sound so good? Uh-huh. So I start looking around, and the walls are just normal. They're just normal drywall. You know, there's nothing special. The ceiling is, was irregular, but it wasn't. And so I looked down, and the floors are concrete. And I'm like, dude, that's got to be it. That's got to <laughs> be it. And so, um, I to me, so when I when I built this room here, uh, a, a good friend of mine, Mark Bernstein, helped me build this room. And Mark is one of these super geniuses that knows everything about everything. And I, I feel like I'm in the third grade when I'm standing around and talking to him. And... Uh, Every time I talk to him, it's like getting a lecture on mm-hmm. 
stuff that I have no idea what he's talking about. So, and but he knows uh, sound and he knows how to build a room, and so he helped me. And, uh, and I would have not. He helped me build my house as well. I would have not been able to finish my house except for Mark. He was like an angel sent from God. Wow. Um, and uh, I will be forever grateful to him for that. The, um, but when he helped me build the room, he uh, explained to me about putting up soundboard and then drywall, and then we floated the ceiling. Uh, we didn't put the, the drywall up against the ceiling. We yeah. hung the ceiling, yeah. this stuff called hat track, and it's really thick wire, and basically you're hanging two, like two by fours. Yeah. And so you screw the, so, and then you put uh, rock wool above in, in the cavity and then you put a dead space up there and right. the, and that's part of what deadens the room. And so we really soundproof the crap out of this room. So that's controlling the volume. That's just controlling the bleed going into other rooms. Uh -huh. But uh, what I wanted to do was create a very aggressive sounding rock sounding room yeah um and uh so i took the uh the scott parker house studio tom bookovac slash studio i'm not even sure he lives there anymore i think he's moved since then um but i so i i took the cement and see it was in the basement so i just basically finished the the cement floor instead of putting wood down mm -hmm. um and then um i put uh, and then I took the other, the tracking room, and I built one of the rooms. I didn't want to do all the rooms because I thought it would be way out of control, but I took one of the walls and I, and I put, you know, the cultured stone or, you know, the stone that they make it look like stone, but it's actually cement. And I it took me about a week and I built this and I had my kids help me. And Did you glue it to the wall? I mean, it, it looks like a stone wall, but it's up against. It's actually, uh, what you do is you have to put this lath up. And then you put gotcha. you put cement on the lath. Yeah, yeah. And then you uh, you take and it's it, it's almost like a metal rake. You have to make grooves in the cement. Sure. And then and then you butter the the pieces one by one with with the cement. And that cement bonds with the cement that's on the wall. Sure. And, and you can pretty much climb. It's almost it. like putting a backsplash. Yeah. In a kitchen, but big time. Very similar, except you're doing stone instead of. Yeah. And so and I wanted an. I wanted a stone that was open, so it, this is called a dry stack, which you don't put cement in between it, and right. so that, and so the stone is very irregular, and it's like a million little diffusers, because the room is not a big room. A lot of people, when they see my YouTube videos, they think that I'm in this big, giant room, <laughs> and it's not. It's The room is only like 10 by 18. Yeah. So it's the same width as this room. That's what's inspiring because a lot of us have limited space. Right. We're trying to turn something into our house, into a drum room. We're not, you know, f from the get-go, a living space, which is not a studio space. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's, it, um, it's, you don't need a big two-story great room. You don't need a giant bonus room with 18-foot ceilings. You don't need that. You really don't need that. Well, you've been playing tracks for me that you recorded here, and it just it sounds amazing. Yeah, it's, it's you know, the crazy thing is, and I keep telling people, it's like, man, I mean, we can go cut somewhere else. I I, I just, I love the sound of this drum room. It, it sounds exactly the way I hear drums in my head because I hear space and air and three-dimensional, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and part of that is the room mic sound. So we, what, what I told Mark is that I described the room the sound that I wanted. And he goes, okay, here's what we're going to do. 
And so he designed this room. And so it, it took us about four months to build it. And uh, um, I literally had a couple of songwriters, uh, uh, a couple of female songwriters that... Uh, that I needed to do drum tracks for. And so I said, well, you know, come over and we'll do them in the new room. And so literally the day I finished, the <laughs> next day I had a session booked. Yeah. And so I thought, I don't even know if this room works or not. I don't know if it <laughs> sounds good. So I took, um, once everything was done and the floors were dry and everything, so I, I took uh, and I brought in a, a drum throne and a kick pedal and a little tiny rug and I shut the doors and... When I uh, uh, I sh shut the doors, I sat down behind, and I hit the kick drum one time, and it went, and I went, oh my God, we did it, we did it. <laughs> this is this is the sound that I was hearing. This is the sound that I was, and so, it, we started doing drum tracks. I, I mean, I've probably done, I can't. I every time Allison Presswood comes over here and records a lot, and she laughs because she looks under the drum kit. Because I'll do a drum track and then I'll pull the thing down and I'll just put the chart on under the floor, Tom. Every time she comes over here, there's like a hundred <laughs> charts right. under the floor, Tom. So, and I'm like, oh, I got to clean that up. So, but she, uh, it, it, it was the sound that I wanted. And then a lot of people were like, well, that's too loud. And I'm like, well, that's, that's easy. I made, I made these rolling gobos and I turned the room mics off and I roll the gobos in and I I put blankets on the floor and I can make it, you know, just like that swell season record we were talking about, you know, yeah. just uber, uber tight. Yeah. And, um, it's, it's just the most versatile little drum room. Um, uh, and I, honestly, I think, I think this drum room should be on every rock record on the planet. That's awesome. It's just, well, that's what's inspiring me. Like, I, I, so I've got that small room. So I'm thinking, man, if I need a tight sound, I've got that room and I've got drums set up in there. I got a second set. So, kind of going a little overboard to have two things but uh it's fun oh it, it's a journey it's a total journey and yeah. it's a journey of learning and you experiment and you're like you know i want to try this mic pre and i want to try this mic and um well what has changed since you started <clears throat> in this room like what technology has not changed which has been tried and true when you started back in O two and what has been a game changer in recent years for you? Well, honestly, um, I started out uh, okay. So when I was doing sessions around the campus, um, you kind of you know you you work different rooms and you see what sounds good and what sounds what doesn't sound good. One of the things at the time, uh, Yamaha came out with these digital consoles called the O two R, and I was absolutely flabbergasted by how great drums sounded going straight into this console. Mm -hmm. um, now, not everything sounded great going into this console. Um, I've tried recording like acoustic guitar and vocals. It's just abysmal. Does, they don't work. <laughs> so, uh, but high transient stuff, uh, and to this day, I still have a little Yamaha uh, O1V, which is their 24-bit uh, version of the O2R. It's got the same mic pre's. Mm -hmm. um, and when I first started, that's I used that exclusively for uh, 
Mike Priest. Well, is there a modern equivalent to that, like an X32 or something? No, well, they've got, they've still got the uh, the O1V. They've just now got the 96 uh, uh, K version of it. Uh, but I'm honestly, I'm still using the 24-bit version. Um, I found out that the O1V has the same mic pre's as the O2R, and so I thought, you know, when I was when I was first building this room, you know, I, obviously I, I had X amount of dollars to work with, and and I didn't have enough money to go out and just buy a rack of Neves and rack of APIs, um, and so people kept saying, well, you know, Personas makes this. Uh, this eight mic pre thing and I'm yeah. like ah. and and so I did some research and realized that the O1V excuse me the O1V had the same mic pre's and it had 12 mic pre's on it in this little you know this little mixer uh, it had an eight ad out and it had four discrete out so basically I had 12 outputs mm-hmm. um, actually I think 14 outputs because you can use this spdif output as well um, so, and I think I found one for like 400 bucks or something like that. It was like dirt cheap. When was this? Yeah. This was like in 02. Oh, back in 02. Okay. Yeah. And so I, I started recording just with that. And I think back then I only had two room mics. I was only using two room mics. And, and I started putting videos up on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I literally had, and I probably shouldn't even tell the story. I had this one producer call me and he wigged out. On the phone, he said, "This is the best drum sound I've ever heard." Blah blah blah. Uh, you're blowing my mind. He said, "I've got all these, um, you know, CCM records that I want to record, and I want to just come over here." And he said, "They've got to be a bunch of Neves and APIs, right?" <laughs> and I made the mistake of being honest with him. <laughs> I should have said, "Oh yeah, they're all Neves and APIs." But instead, of what I said is, "No, nah, I'm, I'm using this." Uh, you know, and I've, since then I've bought a bunch of Neves and APIs. Yeah. But back then I had I had this little digital console, and yeah. I said, "Now nah, I'm using this Yamaha ONV." I said, "I said, dude, it's like my secret weapon, and not a lot of people know about it. A few drummers know about it, but not a lot." And I said, "It's mind blowing what yeah. it sounds like." And the guy went, "Oh, okay. Uh, well, I'll call you. Bye." And never called me after but, that. But, yeah. <laughs> It has to be. Like, I don't get it. Like, the end result. That's called listening with your perceptions. That's not listening with your ears. Yeah. So, and and the reason why I went out and bought, you know, some Neves and some APIs is because, you know what? I'm going to have to cater to a certain clientele okay. that cannot listen with their ears. They've only listened with their perceptions. And so, if you say Neve, API, whatever... Then you know, and so I've got a mixture of all these different mic pre's. Now, honestly, I've taken the Neves and I've taken the APIs, and I've AB'd them against my silly little digital console, which you can buy one now for three hundred bucks. Mm-hmm. On you know, I've 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 AB'd the toms, which and my tom mics are the favorite tom mics on the planet, which I think are the best sounding tom mics. Period. And I've AB'd them on. I've recorded them on the Neves and the APIs, and I keep going back to this, you know, O1V because they sound better. Yeah. I'm like, I don't care what you think, what your perceptions are. What I care about is what it sounds like. Yeah. What does it sound like? Are you sitting in front of these speakers and going, oh my God, it's the best thing I've ever heard. That's what you want. Right. You don't, you know, and, and consequently, I've also worked in rooms that have $700,000 
need VR consoles. And, and, and I hear the drum sounds and I'm like, not impressed. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, and I don't tell people that, but I, you know, you know, I, I have, and I don't tell a lot of people this, I have Asperger's. So, okay. Um, grew up with Asperger's. It took me a long time to figure out that I have Asperger's, yeah. you know, uh, it took me a long time to figure out how, why I had such a hard time being diplomatic with people. Oh, interesting. And since, you know, being in the music business for 30 years, it's knocked off all these rough edges. And now I'm the king of diplomacy. I'm really good at being <laughs> diplomatic. But, um, being, being an Asperger, being an Aspie, and I've got two kids that are Aspies as well. Um, being an Aspie, I'm like, uh, I don't, uh, you know, I just, I just want, I want to know what this sounds like. I, yeah. You know, I don't care. Oh, and, and, uh, cause I was talking about being in these high dollar rooms. It's like, you know, the Aspie in me wants to say, oh, my room at home smokes these drums. These drums <laughs> suck. I don't care how many exactly. air childs you have in the room and how many, you know, knee VRs or whatever, you know. And honestly, uh, it, it, it's really dependent on the who's sitting behind the console. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I've I've been in certain rooms like literally the same week with different engineers. It's like a di- it's like a different drummer on the same drum set. It, it is. Oh, and I can tell you a story about that too. I was uh, uh, and, and sorry, I'm very ADD. So well, let me let me let me ask you this: two questions that listeners may be wondering. You mentioned your tom mics that you're. But what were those tomics? And are these the ones you were telling me that, that are no longer made? They're no longer. They stopped making them in like 05. They're, they're SE. Uh, the SE is the equivalent of these. No, they're SEs. They're well. old. Oh, they're, they're older SEs. SEs, but they stopped making them in. They look like TLM 103s, but they're not. They're, they're called SE 3500s. But, the, but, the, but you also see you the SE. Even, you can't even Google a picture of them. <laughs> they're, they're so rare. Um, I bought three of them, and a couple of them have fallen apart. I've st- I still have two that work, and one, the uh, the capsule is like flopping around. I gotta get some. But isn't the, the, the but you were showing me SE makes them? Was a four forty? They're they're newer equivalent. Supposedly, according to SE, the newer equivalent of this mic is the SE forty four hundred, which okay. I'm uh, and my buddy David Kalmuski, who runs uh, Jonathan Kane Studio Addiction. Yeah, um, he uses these sometimes, and he. This guy gets drum sounds that will... That's quite an endorsement right that, there. That, well, I'm just curious if anybody's like, what, what, what Tom Mikes is he talking about? The other thing I was going to mention is um, I, I equate some of the gear, the recording gear, the expensive versus the less expensive, but what gets the results to snare drums oftentimes. I mean, there's that Yamaha snare drum you were talking about. Well, you know, that's interesting. Um, so when I back up... Uh, uh, back up to like go back to the the drummer that I studied under in college mm. um, was a fantastic drummer by the name of Jim DeLong just a genius where was this? this was in Oklahoma is that where you're from? <clears throat> no no I just I just went to school there the uh, but this guy he literally you know we would learn beats and stuff like that but he was a studio drummer and and he would go hey check this out and he would pull up a floor tom and hit it and it would go do and I'd be like that might be the best sound of floor tom I've ever heard in my life and he said and we would sit and hit drums 
And he'd go, no, 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 no. Now pull the sound out of the drums. And he'd hit it, and it would sound like a million bucks. And I'd hit it, and it would go, eh. Uh-huh. And, and so we would, we would, part of what I studied was how to hit a drum to make it sound good. Right, right. And um, I tell drummers, A, learn how to hit the drums. Because the thing is, you're not playing an instrument. Mm. The drum kit is not an instrument. It's 12 instruments. Mm. You're playing, or 10 instruments, or whatever, whatever your kit is. Yeah. Um, the snare takes a different uh, way to hit it to pull a snare tone out than the toms hit do, than the, the ride cymbal does, than the crash cymbal mm-hmm. does, than the hi-hat does. Yeah. And so uh, it was just drilled into my head, and I think that's why I have engineers that come and tell me, um, uh, and I'll tell you this story real quick. So I was, I was at uh, Catch This Music doing demos, and one of the newer hipper cooler, and there's so many hot drummers right now that are just tearing the world up, <laughs> and um, and they're great. Uh, but one of the I, I don't I have no idea who it was, but it was one of the hipper cooler guys that's really hot right now, and he did the morning session. And then he got booked somewhere else, probably doing a master for the afternoon. And so they called me to come and play the afternoon session. And and it was a house kit. I can't remember what kind of house kit they had. Uh, so I brought, I always bring a couple snares and my cymbals. So I'm, I'm setting up. And so we play the first song. After the first song, the engineer comes out and looks at me. And I'm like, what? And he goes, what are you doing? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, playing the drums. What? And he goes, no, 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 no. What are you doing? What are you doing different? He said, the drums sound better. Mm, interesting. And I'm like, uh, well, you know, we have a, we have a, <laughs> Kevin Beamish, the famous engineer said, uh, had a saying that said, uh, it's not the arrow, it's the Indian. Mm. So, and, uh, the only thing I can, I just have to give credit to Jim DeLong because he taught me how yeah. to hit the drums and, you know, literally having engineers come up and say, just the way you hit the drums sound different. It sounds better. Yeah. And uh, and I, I get a lot of compliments from a lot of engineers about how, you know, my, my drums sound great. And so uh, when you put that with Tommy's Dungeon in, in the room, I've got a kit that I, I, you know, think sounds really, really good. And then you put it with how you hit the drums and then you put it in a room that sounds fantastic and you've got a winning combination. Right. Now, Todd Zuckerman, when I had a chance to talk with him, he was talking about grip and just looseness of grip. And, and so he was kind of pointing to something as, as, as best you can in this audio format. Is there something you could speak to that might give the listener an idea of what might be helpful for them to get that sound, to draw that sound out? Well, in terms of toms, you, you want to kind of snap it and pull the tone out of it. Mm-hmm. You, you, just, you just want, uh, I, I can't really describe it. I've, I've seen guys hit toms in such a way that it literally almost chokes the drum down. Yeah. And there's a, there's a volume range as well. Uh, if you hit the drums too quietly, you're not going to get the tone. If you hit the drums too hard... Yeah. Uh, the drum's going to self-compress. Mm-hmm. That's why a lot of rock records 
in the early 90s, mm -hmm. the drums sound really little mm. because it was back before they had uh, sound replacement. And then you get, uh, you know, you get a heavy metal drummer that goes in and beats the living dog crap out of the drums. Well, there's a certain point that once you pass that threshold, the drum literally starts to shut down. Yeah. And same thing with snare. Um, if you play the snare too, too hard, it's going to shut down. Um, I play match grip and I play butt end uh, on my snare hand uh, simply because I grew up watching Steve Gadd play and that's the way he played. And, and, uh, and Neil played that way for a long yeah, time. Yeah, I love just the way. And the other, the, the other reason that I play that way is because uh, then when I go for a side stick, I've already got the butt in. Yeah. And the side stick compared to the normal side on a side stick uh, is 50% better. It's yeah. just 50% chunkier and louder. And that's another thing. Um, I, I get a lot of compliments from live uh, sound engineers that they don't have to turn my side stick up. Okay. Because literally when I, when I go to play a side stick, um, it's like a duck, you know, uh, with the feet under the water doing this <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm relaxing everything but when I hit the side stick I'm going yeah, I'm, I'm cracking the thing yes, hard as yeah, I can yeah, yeah, yeah. And, the, and because I use the butt end of the stick the, the volume is commensurate with a live snare sound which means that this, the, the guys don't have to turn the side stick mm -hmm. up and uh, you know some of the guys that I work with live will probably tell you that or I'd, I would hope that they would tell you that um when there's lots of different, like Americana and country, where you're using side stick a lot, or the music is very dynamic, uh, you have to take that into account. And so they're relying yeah. on you to yeah. bring that. Yeah, and, and having an indie band trying to go after like a swell season type sound, yeah, you're that's a band. whole different mm -hmm. animal. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole different... Uh, I mean, that's, that's where you turn the room mics down, you hunker down and you don't hit as hard. And you just let everything be open and breathing. And uh, uh, I mean, like there's one song on our record uh, called Oh Heart. And I wanted to get that sound that uh, the drummer from Swell Season, uh, that guy's a genius. What is his name? God, he's, he's, he's one of my, I actually saw him on one of these websites where you can hire. Air gigs. Air gigs. He's on there. Graham yeah. Hopkins. Graham Hopkins. Oh my God! What a, I mean, I just. I, it's I'm, funny. I'm, he's on my list as well. Actually, I'm such crazy. a slobbering super fan of this guy. It's so funny that we've 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 come to that conclusion that I mentioned Swell Season about your that the 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 group that you have with your wife Lost Hollow Band. I said some of the tracks reminded me of that, and you said and that we both <laughs> realize how much of a fan we are. And I yes. just listened to them last week. That record. For the first time in maybe a year and a half, but for probably a solid year and a half, five years ago, I was listening to it nonstop. They cut that record really fast, and when you listen to it, it sounds like somebody went in and just tightened everything up and pro And I don't think they touched anything. And from what I, the story that I heard was that they had this really nice room to go cut this one song for a commercial or something. And Glenn said, hey, if we get done early, can we use the room for ourselves? And the guy's like, yeah, sure, whatever. So they literally cut the entire Swell Season record. The Strict Joy is what it's called. Yeah, right. That's one of my Desert Island records. I listened to that record for a solid two years. Yeah. And it, I had to make myself listen to other stuff. <laughs> 
I mean, it was, that record is so deep and so, it, there's just everything on that record. It's like, uh, I grab that record, I'm going to the desert island and I'll see you. And that's all I need. That, that uh, if you get the bonus version of that, there's the live recording. Yeah, yeah, that and that Nightfly by Donald Fagan and I'm done. That's all I need. Okay. So... <laughs> And we used to do that bonus content. We used to do Desert Island Records. Um, we used to talk a lot about that. And oh stuff. yeah, and so that's that's one of them. And I'm telling you, yeah. not a people. A lot of people know about that, and a lot of people know the soundtrack to the Once movie. Yeah. And by the way, the Once movie. Uh, so Lori's sister Christy told me about this movie. So we went and saw it at the Green Hills Theater, not knowing that that was the last day it was there. And I called four people before I got to the car. <laughs> and said, "Oh my God, you got to see this movie! It's incredible!" And I, I've showed it to my kids. My kid, we've all, I've bought like I've got probably got three copies of it here. Yeah, it changed my life. And that song, uh, "Falling Slowly," we do it live in our shows. Yeah, uh, they uh, won an Oscar. Yeah, I mean they beat out Beyonce and all these high, yeah. you know, fluting artists. And uh, to me. Uh, what they did with Strict Joy, that was like the apex of, and and, and I wish they would get together and make more records. But uh, they are touring. Well, I know they're touring, yes. But not around here. I saw that. And I think they're coming to D.C. or Chicago. It's right? all like East Coast. and, and I think Well, I was able to see them at oh, the yeah. Ryman. Ugh. And uh, in the same month, I saw uh, Swell Season at the Ryman and Image and Heap at the Ryman. Yeah. Two of the best shows I've ever seen with two of the most minimal stage and lighting, and and the 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 frames band that plays for Swell Season, mm -hmm. right? They they're a bunch of studio players from Dublin, and they are so mature in their playing. It's everything they play. Uh, the the violinist is I I'm going to try to get him on one of our records. Hopefully, he maybe he's on air gigs. It's a tone, man. You hear it. There is a well, tone. It's, it's not just a tone. It's what he's playing, yeah. and what and how he's how many times he's doubles his track, and and he doesn't try to make a, an entire string quartet. You know, he just mm -hmm. plays like one line or two. You know, maybe two notes, mm -hmm. and then doubles and triples these, and it's just perfect. What he plays is perfect. Yeah. And uh, but the the crazy thing is, uh, and, and and again, don't let me go down rabbit holes because I'll go down a rabbit hole. The uh, the band actually, and I think this is an Irish thing, but the band actually sits when they play. Okay. It's hilarious because the bass player's sitting down, the guitar player. It's almost like a live session, yeah. like a recording session. Yeah. And but that was one of the best shows I've ever seen. Well, I I I hope to get a chance to see them on that. For the record, swell season. Look it up. Strict joy. The record. Uh, and and also uh, the soundtrack to once it, soundtrack alone is is really cool. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah. I, I could. Gush. The, and the documentary. The, well, they've done like three documentaries. Oh, three? Three of them. Okay, so the Strict Joy. If you get the bonus version, the deluxe yeah. version, it has a DVD in it. Which, oh. Okay. So that it has it has uh, the record, a live CD, and the DVD, which is worth watching. Yeah. Then they did the the once movie. Then they did. Another different documentary, I think that was kind of centered around their their romance. Yeah, that you didn't like the touring. Yeah, 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 that's really fascinating. That yeah, no, it's that's definitely. I think there's 
two, maybe three documentaries. Okay. You, you, and you got you got to find them. But. Well, I got to dig into it. I'm I'm a I'm a super fan. Yeah. Uh, while we're on the recording end of things, I do want to ask um, anything about your time in the studio, your experience recording, whether it's here or on the campus or you know here in Nashville. Things, something you've learned, or things that you've learned that people would be surprised to hear. Um, well, I'm I'm a drummer. I like I like to play what we stuff. What we call we call it nam chops, <laughs> and uh, you know the nam shows here twice a year. So, and we, we always joke around. You know, we play all this crazy stuff in the studio, and it's like, yeah, we're getting my nam chops together. You know, I got the nam show called me. I got offered two gigs a year, summer and winter, so I can keep my stuff set up. So, but right, right, yeah, keep it set up for yeah. next year. Yeah, so and and so, in terms of that, what I try to tell drummers, I tell drummers, don't play the drums, play the song, mm-hmm. because and I can I can in about two or three bars I can usually tell if the drummer's playing the drums or if the drummer's playing the song. Mm. And I tell, I tell any type of musician, um, if you want to get better at recording, mm. and this mostly is for recording, if you want to get better at recording, learn to write songs, write songs, then play on your own songs. And then, uh, and so... And I'm a songwriter. I've written, you know, hundreds and hundreds of songs. Uh, I've gotten songs cut. Reba cut uh, two of our songs oh, on, the, on the duets record. Uh, we got the Carol King duet and the Faith Hill duet. As far as I know, the Carol King duet is the only song Carol has ever recorded that she did not write. That's amazing. Yeah. And uh, but that aside, um, early on in my writing career. Um, I would play, you know, we had the studio here, so we'd, we'd bring guys here and we'd cut tracks. And I'd throw, you know, really cool fills at the end and stuff. And after about the sec- the 200th time that I'd listen to this thing, I'd go, you know, that's a cool fill, but I'm really tired of hearing it, A, and B, it doesn't service the song. It gets in the way of the song. It detracts from the song. And uh, so I, I learned quickly, being a songwriter how to play on other people's songs. It's like you want to create excitement, but you don't want to detract. There's a way to create excitement without detracting. And uh, Jimmy Lee Slowis is a master at this. Jimmy Lee Slowis uh, is probably the number one, one of the number one bass players in town that does mm-hmm. records, and he's amazing. He's funny, and he's just, uh, he's a genius. And Jimmy will play the bass. He wants to play the bass. <laughs> you know, and he's got a great pocket, He's got this innate ability to play about three milliseconds behind the kick drum. Even if the kick drum is rushing or dragging, he's three milliseconds behind the rushed or dragged kick drum. It's, it's like, I don't, he's a machine. I, yeah. But what Jimmy Lee does is one time in the song, maybe twice in the song, but usually about one time in the song, and it's usually towards the end of the song, he'll step out and he'll do this fill that just... It's like a it's like somebody grabbed a fish and slapped you upside the head with it. <laughs> and then he gets back in and plays the bass. You know, it's, yeah, it's yeah, almost yeah. like what just happened? Yeah. And I've heard him do it a couple times in a song, but usually it's just one. And usually it's in an appropriate place like toward like in the third chorus, 
after you've heard all three of the courses and you know what the course is supposed to be like, right. so you don't have to have that as a handrail. And so, and I really try to do that as well in the studio. Mm-hmm. Play the song, not the drums. It, what does the song require? The song will generally tell you what it requires. Yeah. Um, and uh, another thing that I pride myself, because I do a lot of producing, uh, and also being a producer and a writer, and I'm, I'm even, and most people don't even know this, an orchestral arranger. Oh, cool. Before I moved to town, I had a degree in uh, arranging and composition, and I used to arrange for uh, a local philharmonic. Uh, I've done big band tracks, string tracks, uh, and it, that's part of my before na- before I moved to Nashville. And people in Nashville don't think that you can do more than one thing, so they they don't uh, you, you you don't want to muddy the water by telling them I can do this, this, this and this because people can't accept the fact that people can do more. But than you have thing. you have APIs and leaves. <laughs> I mean, come on, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh man, so. yeah. I'll call you back. Thanks, bye. <laughs> <clears throat> Tell them you won't be in today Baby, there ain't nothing At the office so important I can't wait I'm thankful for Some of my favorite drummers now uh, I say now Like at this stage of my life and, and what I want to emulate Is that drummer that plays for the song Creates an incredible feel has just the tones and everything, just their touch and tone is 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 there. But then every once in a while, they'll just give you that little piece of candy. Yeah, ear that, candy. Ear candy that for the non-musician, for the non-drummer, they're like, wow, that's, that's that song is great. They don't know what it is about it. They don't know what the drummer or the bass player did. But something about that song is exciting, that third chorus round. Yeah. But as a drummer, as a musician, you're going, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Now, case in point, the James Otto stra- track that you played on, uh, Just Got Started Loving You. That's a song that I played, when it first, especially when it first came out. There's a couple bands that I worked with that played that. And to get that right, feel right, you know, and sometimes if I'm playing with bands that are playing covers, I try and go to the source, especially mm-hmm. if it's Nashville songs recorded artists and stuff like that because i'm thinking because i got friends that play with james otto i got friends that have played and you know i've played in bands that have covered restless heart songs and alabama songs and now you're playing with alabama and i'm playing with larry stewart and so i kind of did my homework early on and and try to get into the head of someone like you that's playing so I have a transcription. I have to find it. It's been a couple years since I played it. But I have my drum charts, and I have tr- a transcription of that track. Wow. And, um, dude, the opening fill is so awesome. The fill coming in to play the out is so awesome. And then everything else in between is just that bread and butter. Yeah. yeah. It's, do you remember that track? I do. Uh, the funny thing about that song in particular, and... Uh, uh, my buddy Jim Femina wrote that. God rest his soul. He just passed away. Um, 
uh, and then uh, Davis Williams and James wrote that song. And literally, the story behind that song, James, uh, James called him and said, "I got to have one more song on the record." And it's you know, it's just a it doesn't matter. Let's just write a song. Yeah. And they got together at Sunday afternoon, like before they were cutting the following week, and wrote it. And uh, and I think uh, James, you know, was kind of messing around with that. And uh, they're like, oh, that's cool. So they, they wrote that in like two hours. Mm-hmm. The song was was on the charts for 120 weeks. They couldn't get it off the charts. Mm-hmm. They couldn't break a second single because of that. So, and honestly, I don't remember. I think we cut that... I think we cut that at that studio I was telling you about, uh, the, uh, the Scott Parker uh, Bukovac studio. Okay. And oh. I think Jay, I think Jay DeMarcus produced that. I'm not sure, because uh, it all runs together. But <laughs> it, you know, honestly, I you you never think about a song, because if you would, you'd be, get too nervous and you wouldn't play it right. Not at the time you're cutting it. You. When you think of a song, when you're cutting it, you're just like, I just want to, you know, make this the best that it can be. Every song. And you have you have no idea that that song is going to be like, yeah, a mind blower, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I was just pl- tr- playing the song and trying to keep the groove going and trying not to rush and drag and and then you know, uh, playing fills where appropriate and uh, and you know, playing behind James. I mean, how could you not? sound great I mean god the guy's a freak there's a couple things about it though that I, I, I kind of want to point out I, I, I'd love to use like a little bit of it here for the person for the listener to hear you know just to kind of remind refresh their memory of the song if they if they've heard it before or to introduce them to it there's the fills like I said there's those that that as a drummer which I love but Having experienced to play the song with the band and try and get that feel, it was there were some nuances that were very challenging because it just sits right back in there. And yeah, it sits back, but there's this upbeat pulse, and everybody in the band has to be there. Yeah, and everybody on that session was there. Yeah, um, there's also Almost to me, like, I hear it in a lot of your snare tones. Uh, on your YouTube channel, which is great, you talk about the low fatty snare, the high snare, and then that mid-rangey snare. That seems like a thing that you have that I hear. Like, when I hear a track that Chad Cromwell does, I'm like, oh, that, I, I know that's Chad's. That's his snare tone. Mm-hmm. I hear it. I hear Greg's snare tone. I hear yours, and I'm like, oh. That's that's your snare tone, and that's that's representative of that track. I know you don't remember, but do you can do you remember at all what snare you were using? I <laughs> am fairly sure. What year was that? Do you remember? Two thousand five, maybe. I, I don't remember. Think that was later. Uh, the, before I got. I, I have one cracky snare that I use. Yeah, and that was a cracky snare. Um, uh, I use a. Uh, my main cracky snare is a Joyful Noise mm. uh, 5x14, 10-lug, uh, made by Kurt Waltrip, who is a freaking genius at mm. making drums. Um, and the best cracky snare I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and it's serial number two. Okay. I have serial number two. 
Um, I was lucky enough to, to, to buy these from a, a drummer that was selling two of them at once, and I bought both of them. And uh, uh, But before I got that drum, the drum that came about 95% to what the Joyful Noise does was the Yamaha Paul Lime. Yeah. And I've got three of those. I've got two, a one six and a half and two five and a halves. And, and that I think is what's on that drum. I think it's the Paul Lime. And that I'm telling you, and I, and I told, I, the five and a half. Yeah. Yeah. I saw Paul, uh, a couple months ago and it, Paul is just really sweet and congratulations to him. He, he just got listed as one of the most recorded drummers on right. the planet. Right. Um, uh, and we were talking about it, and I said, you know, I told him, I said, I said, you know, I've got three of your original snare drums, the non-seamless ones, or the seamless ones. And he said, dude, he said, if you ever sell them, call me. And I and I said, well, I'll never, a, I'll never sell them, and b, they're worth a lot of money now. Well, why do you have two of the same snare drum? Why do you have two five and a half? Uh, because um, I wanted one for the house, for the home studio, and I wanted one gotcha. to be able to take to around the campus. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then. Uh, and then the the six and a half, and I've still got to go uh, over. I want I want to go over to his house and have him set up the the six and a half for me because I'm not happy with the way it's set up. But it'll sound great once he puts his thing on it. Mm -hmm. So, but the joyful noise now is is what I use. Uh, the funny thing is, um, so many studios now use house kits, and even like I worked at the castle mm -hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And I use their house kit. I've never used a house kit at the castle ever. I've recorded there a thousand times, and uh, and it sounded great. It was a great sound kit. It was an old uh, uh, Camco from the '60s, and it sounded oh, cool, wonderful. Um, what uh, are you taking with you when you when you know there's? A I take kit? a bag of cymbals. Yeah. I have four bag, four or five bags of cymbals that are laying around the house, and I'm like, I got way too many cymbals. Um, I've played Sabian cymbals since 1991, and I love Sabian cymbals. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's all a taste preference, but uh, Andy Zildjian is a buddy of mine. Uh, they make the best cymbals in the world, in my opinion. And uh, I take four snare drums with me, and it started out as two snare drums. I would take a cracky and a fat. Mm -hmm. And then when I figured out how to get to dial the mid and it's very tricky to get a mid sounds like two guys that lived in my neighborhood cracky and fat yeah yeah cracky <laughs> <laughs> um, the mid sound is the hardest sound for me to get um, and I'll tell you another story about that but uh, so I figured out how to get uh, that I got a pork pie six and a half uh, a black bob or big bob or something like that I can't remember uh, or big black bob or anyway but that's your black beauty that's my black beauty copy uh -huh. and so I thought well this does it it's just like the black beauty and then of course uh, we were out on the road with Alabama and Alabama uses backline we always have a kit brought in um, and we were in Alabama recording down at Gulf Shores so the kit that I saw you with the Yamaha that mm -hmm. was that so I'll be with y'all this weekend yeah are you going to have a different kit uh, probably yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it's they, they don't like to bring kids out and I'm hey, I'm 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 open for business. You tell me what you want, want to do yeah, and we'll sure. do it. Uh, however, when we were in Alabama, the rental company brought a real black beauty from the seventies, uh, beautifully engraved by John Aldridge. Mm -hmm. Um and that drum 
was like, once I got that drum dialed in, I thought, this is the best mid-crack snare drum that I've ever heard in my life. I'll never be satisfied with another one. And so we literally talked the guy into letting us either loan or rent this drum out long term. So we now have this drum with us. And then he just said, when you're done with it, just bring it back, you know, which we will. You know, we promise. <laughs> I'd love to take it. That's the one you had out when I saw you <clears throat> yes. two weeks ago. It is mind-blowing. <clears throat> and it doesn't sound like my pork pie. So anyway, getting back to what I carry around in the car, um, I, I have... Uh, I have the the joyful noise. Yeah, it's my cracky. Yeah, um, uh, Bart Bush, a buddy, engineer buddy, of mine calls it chromy. He said, "Put chromy up." <laughs> and then um, I have my fat snare is a, a nineteen eighty three Yamaha Birch that I think was a recording custom. It was a six and a half, and I literally when I first came to Nashville, I did you know on my off days I do construction work. Mm-hmm. You know, and the guy that I was working for goes, "Hey, I found this snare drum. You want it? And here's a snare stand too." That uh, we we were rehabbing this house with this, you know, the, this only in Nashville. This crack crack uh, trust fund baby in Belle that that had this giant house, and he just sat around smoking crack or whatever. So the uh, and I thought the first time I took that to a session, um, and it, and I just dumped it out immediately. I was like, "This is gonna be a fat snare." The first, and I, I took it to a session, and the engineer's eyes got that wide, and he goes, what is that snare? And I was like, I can't tell you. It's a secret weapon. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the hard-to-love snare. That's the snare uh, I used on, uh, okay. on hard-to-love. And that's another track that a lot of drums... I love that. I like that track. Yeah, I like it a lot. Really, really love that track. Yeah. And, uh, oh, what's the artist? Uh, uh, Lee Bryce. Lee Bryce. Yeah, that's... Uh, uh, and the interesting story about it. Remind me to tell you that, that okay. story because that's that's an interesting story. Um, but so I carried that the fat guy, and that's like my Uber dumped out. And then I carried the pork pie, which is my mid. And then about I think it was probably around 2014, I was out with Reba, and we had to fly to this casino in Oklahoma the day before because because of the airline situation. So we were there. And Olivia Newton-John was playing that night. And our piano player, uh, Catherine Marks, played for her. So she made a phone call, got us all you know, tickets to the show. She's like, so 10 of us went, and Mark Beckett was playing. Yeah. And one song into this, I'm realizing this might be the best mid-cracks. Again, this might be the snare sound of my dreams what he's playing. Holy crap, what is this? And so, after the show, I made a beeline up to him and I said, Mark, you're a genius. What snare is that? He goes, oh, I thought you were gonna ask that. And so we walked, he took me up to the kit and it was nothing of what I expected. It was, okay, so James Beyer yeah. makes this snare and it is a four by 15. Yeah. Thin stainless steel. It's like check every rule that I have against snares and chuck them out the window. I mean, this right. this drum does. So that. James has been a guest on here, and he's made me a four by fifteen. And Dude, I'm gonna bring it out. I'm gonna bring it out this weekend. It. I'm telling you, once you get that sucker dialed in, and yeah. when I first got that, uh, so I anyway. So Mark, Mark said, 
He just made it. I think he's got another shell. Let me hook you up with him. And literally that, I talked to him the next morning. He goes, oh, I got another shell. I'll make you one. So he sent me one. I bet I've sold 50 of them. Yeah. Just because I've probably put, it's probably a close tie between the joyful noise and the buyer, mm -hmm. which one I've put on Instagram more. Mm -hmm. And usually if I'm in the studio and the drum is like the magic hero of the day, mm -hmm. sometimes I'll take a picture of it and the buyer has been on there probably 20 times. The least. only thing I have a challenge, <clears throat> if I have to do a track or if there's a lot of cross stick, the 15 is just a, can be a little bit of a challenge. I've never, I've never, never had a challenge. It. Okay. But again, I play my cross stick, I play butt end and, and. Yeah. And I'm so. using 5BX and I find I get a good cross stick even with it forward. Mm -hmm. I switch it around sometimes. Yeah. But I can get a nice, um, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm toying with the idea. So I usually well, bring out two, I'll bring And out. see, a lot of times with these drums, I'll put a die cast hoop on and you'll get a better cross stick sound with a die cast hoop. But the uh, the buyer snare, um, the Ludwig that I was telling you about, the Alabama snare, they're just regular triple flange hoops, and I'm like, I don't want to touch it. No. And when I got the the buyer snare, um, it literally had everything that I don't like on a snare. It had the it had the thin wires, like <laughs> that you know what that whatever that size, the twenty strand wires, yeah, maybe. And it had the under dot head, which I, I, I loathe the under dot heads. I loathe, I hate them. <laughs> I hate them. Or I thought I hated them. Yeah. I just hadn't had them on the right drum. Um, I was so tripped out by how great this drum sound, I did not touch it. James tried to talk me into uh, using the, you know, dot underneath. And I it's, was like, can you just throw, a, you know, just a texture coated... Aquarian, it's, it's money, yeah. uh, and 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 I would encourage you to explore the the Remo, okay. the Emperors, and the Underdot. Yeah. Um, for whatever reason, I've tried all the drum heads, and I've had uh, I've had uh, opportunities where I could have gotten the other heads, either really cheap or, or free. I just love the way the Remos record. Mm -hmm. I I can't I you know when I tell mm -hmm. people this, it, and and doesn't necessarily mean that that is what's going to work with you that's just what what, what for sure doing. for sure it's very individual and it's, uh, everybody's making really good thing good things drums head yeah. cymbals and Evans like are that. making their their heads have come a long way they're they're yeah. they're better yeah. Uh, yeah the uh the buyer however and the buyer the one thing that i found is it's very studio dependent it's room dependent um there are some rooms that it doesn't like Hmm. My room here, it does not like this room. Oh, interesting. It does not like this. It sounds, for whatever reason, the nodes that are in this room fight the nodes that's in the snare room. And so I, I can't use it here. But when it gets into a room, uh, and usually it's either a mid-crack or a, a low-fat guy, um, the other thing that the buyer snare does is I can just turn it about two turns and I can get that Graham Hopkins, you know, with no sustain on the snares, that mm -hmm. really tight 70s gad thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It does that beautifully. You loosen? No, tighten. Oh, tight. Like, like where I can do, you know, a, a double stroke roll and you hear the air between the notes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, whereas my 
uh, my fat guy, my the Yamaha, the hard to love snare, the snares are so ratted out on this thing. Um, and I use I use the wide snare on that one. Okay, like the forty string. And that's another one of my secret weapons. And I'm giving you some secret weapons here. So, <laughs> um, I would say about an inch on either side of that of that forty two strander. Yeah. And I and I always get the cheap, the Canon ones. The the yeah. The the highfalutin coppery ones, the dark metal ones. I don't like. They just don't sound good. They don't record good. Hmm. The 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 just the chrome, Canon inexpensive. Canon, yeah. Because the, the the what a snare does is it goes that's it that's all that's all it does it it and and so when you do a darker metallic you know something that may be more expensive it uh, it doesn't as well as the the cheaper ones for 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 me at least so but if you look at my my hard to love snare <clears throat> an inch on either side the 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 wires aren't even touching the head. They've gotten so ratted and so beat up. And see, I heard a story about Steve Gadd one time. Steve uh, had gotten a new drum tech, and the new drum tech turns the drum over, and the snares were just, I mean, just beat to hell. Mm -hmm. And and uh, and the first thing he did is he pulled them off and threw them in the trash and put a new wire on there. And he said, Steve sat down, grabbed a stick, and went, whack, what would you do to my snare? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to change the snares out. Where are the snares? In the trash. Go get them. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, it, it, so that drum, when you hit it, it literally goes. So literally, the drum resonates and it has its own like built-in reverb. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but the buyer, if I want it to, I can tighten it a couple times, and it's like tighten the snares. I was thinking of the the head. Yeah, you yeah. talk about the snares. Well, tell me about the hard to love. You said there was a story behind that that Lee Bryce track. I didn't even. I don't even remember this happening. Okay. I bet. Well, I, I sort of remember it. We were cutting that at Ocean Way in the big room. Um, it was like we had a ten of the two book that day, and I think we cut "I Drive Your Truck" and "Hard to Love" either in the same session or the same day. And so we were playing "Hard to Love." Uh, it was written by, I'm not sure who all the writers were, but I know John Osier, who who uh, runs Olay now, was one of the guys that runs Olay now genius writer and uh, he was the A&R guy at Curb at the time and they really felt like the song was a hit so we were playing this like the demo and Lee was did not want anything to do with it did not like it was not digging it and um, it was more of like a pocket thing with a crackier snare and they just and, and John Osher was pacing at the back of the control room like a lion he, He's like, man, we got to get this. We got to get this, and it was like, it was like quarter till five, mm. and we had to be out of there at five. So, and and I was telling you earlier, being an arranger and studying music composition, being a songwriter, I see songs in pieces. I can literally look at a song and tell you what's wrong with it. I can tell you, you know, you're 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 making a mistake putting the bridge before the solo. The bridge needs to be after the solo. Yeah. Or or. Uh, you know, you're wonky here, your turnaround's too long, blah, blah, blah. And so that's why a lot of people have me session lead because they know I, they're going to almost get like a built-in second producer, mm -hmm. you know. And so, but I also have the ability to hear the melody line of a song and take out all the 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 production from the demo. And it, it, I, I have a, a, 
uh, the ability to hear through this and and listen and almost like shut that off and just listen to the melody and go, it would be a lot better if we did this. And so Matt, I was working with Matt uh, McClure, who produced that song, uh, and um, Matt said, do you remember the story behind that song? I don't know. And he said, because I have a memory like a steel thing that catches bears. So... <laughs> Nice. The, uh, I, I just I'm terrible. That's that's actually one of the symptoms of Asperger's is you don't you don't remember faces you don't remember. It's so I yeah. you know I've never I don't ever say nice to meet you anymore <laughs> because I'll say nice to meet you and they go yeah you played on my record a year ago and I'm like yeah I didn't yeah. turn that I say good to see you <laughs> good good to see you that's that's it yeah so Matt said um, he said that obviously we were having trouble with this. And it was like quarter till five, and they were really frustrated. Everybody's frustrated. And so Matt said, guys, let's just take five. And we didn't really have five to take, but we took five. And I went out, and I just had this thing in my head. And so I went out, and, and Matt was out on the floor of the big cutting room. And I said, Matt, come here. And I grabbed my my snare, my Yamaha, and because uh, we were playing it totally different. And I said... What if the feel of the song were this? And I put that snare up, and I went, which was radically different than what we were playing. Mm -hmm. And Matt's eyes got this big, and he went, guys, sit back down, please. And we we literally went, and we tried that approach, and we cut it in what, one or two takes. And yeah. That, that's what's on there. Dude, it's a great track. I mean, like, what a, what a really great song, too. Oh, it's, it's a genius song. Uh, Lee's performance I think is one of the best he's ever done mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. and the guitar parts on there just blow my mind they're yeah. just genius tell me about your live stuff because Reba was a big gig for you you started in 2001 with her yeah back back then okay so the, the music business and, I, and I, I got to speak yesterday at Nashville State and I told this story yesterday it's really funny but back then in the 90s you didn't Diversify. You didn't want to be known as a Swiss Army knife. Mm -hmm. You wanted to do your thing and your thing only. And there was so much work that if you only played the dobro, you could work ten twos and sixes every day playing the dobro or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know. Um, so I got off the road. I was on the road with Skaggs for three years, Ricky Skaggs, and um, I decided I'm going to get off the road and I'm going to. It's going to take a couple years. I'm going to bite the bullet, I'm going to do studio work. So, and my daughter was two years old and she would, uh, as I would leave to go out on the road, she'd grab my leg and she'd go, Papa, don't leave. And I went, okay, it's time to get off the road. So, yeah. Um, so I started doing sessions around 96-ish, 97-ish. And it took about two and a half years before it really kicked into high gear. I remember the month that it happened. It was like, you know, momentum, Stop, momentum, stop, momentum, stop. And I thought, is this ever going to kick in? And there was a July around about two and a half years. It was a July. And I remember all of a sudden it going to like a week of triples, triple, double, triple, triple, double, one. So, and and then this will lead to that, I promise. Yeah, yeah. So for that, for like 15 years straight, it was like going as fast as you can go. So 2001, I was in the midst of just 
cranking. I mean, I was cranking. I was mm -hmm. going as hard as I could go, doing as many sessions. And back then, if you took a, if you took, if you took a road gig with Sting or somebody like that, or the Rolling Stones or Mark Knopfler or whoever, then it would actually help your studio gig. If you took a a road gig with a country artist, yeah. Back then, it was almost like this unspoken thing that your work was down, and yeah. uh, you know, I need I need work, so I'm going to go out and do this thing, which would make people hire you less in the studio world. So, well, case in point, I remember when Chris McHugh got the Keith Urban gig. Mm -hmm. I hadn't been in town for very long, and just getting to know who he was, and and he's like just. Don't tell anybody that I've got. I'm like, what are you talking about? You're yeah. playing with Keith Urban. Yeah. But he's like, yeah, I just, yeah. I, I'm going to miss out on work. I'm like, yeah, I, I just, I didn't understand that. Concept. No, it's, it's, it was very real then. Well, so I, I was over at Malloy Boys. I was doing a Tim Rushlow record. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, Jimmy Nichols got off the phone. Uh, we were taking a break in between songs, and he gets off the phone. And he goes, "You want to go out with Reba?" And I went, "No." It's like my, my I'm going I'm I finally broken in I'm I'm going I'm going crazy. Mm -hmm. He goes oh come on it's only for six weeks, and then I said no, absolutely yeah. not. And then he said and then he said but it pays. And then he threw out a number and I went, I'll call you back. <laughs> <laughs> I can lie my my way through six weeks. So long story short, uh, so we did that we did the six week thing and then she took a couple years off and did her TV show and so. Around 2003, 2004 was when the whole Spotify Napster thing was kicking into high gear and the whole industry started going, right. and work started slowing down, publishing companies started buying each other up and, and consolidating, record companies started buying each other up and consolidating, and it was a noticeable slowing of work. And the same guys who would have never taken a road gig now were calling me going, hey, if that Ruby gig ever opens up, you know, let me know. And, mm -hmm. and uh, so it was kind of a God thing. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a Christian. Uh, God, God has, I would not be here. Uh, I got my first gig in four months. Yeah. People told me, get a job. It'll be two years. With Larry Gatlin. Yeah. yeah. It took me, took me, at four months, I, got, I talked my way onto that gig with no audition. And that was a God thing. It was a total God thing. And, um, and this, the Reba thing was a God thing because I had no idea that in two or three years, the industry was just going to kind of self-destruct. Yeah. And, and it just so happened that, you know, after she finished with the show, she called us back and we went back out on the road with her. And it was like, okay, this is perfect because I was literally, I, I had, I played with her for 14 years and I would literally get off a bus, get in my car and drive to the studio and, and work. And it was just like, it would just fit together so beautifully. Mm -hmm. And what was the question originally? It was just your live work, just working with, with Reba, how it got started. Yeah, and it, it, it was, that was a really, it was a fun gig. I, I, was, it, I enjoyed watching her, how she treated people. Um, she, I think every artist in Nashville should be required to, to shadow her for two weeks. Mm-hmm. It would teach them how to treat people. Amazing. She treat she treated the security guard uh, the same as she treated some celebrity in the green room. 
That's awesome. It, it, everybody was the same. She never Michelle Wright is the same way. Yeah, Michelle Wright was, I got to record with her. She's, she was amazing. Mm -hmm. She was so, you know, and on top of the, the, you know, the, the Canadian niceness. I know. You know, she, it was like, she's just especially sweet on top of that. And she, yeah. um, so, but Reba was like, it, it was, it was an interesting gig because her music runs the gamut. It's like, you know, the country of countries to the most, a crazy, you know, almost fusion-like, you know, pockets, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and we, we all played with a click. I, I had the count offs on my MPC 2000. <laughs> I'd hit the count offs and, uh, you know, off off we go. And it was very surgical. It was a very surgical gig. There's a lot of session players in that band. You know, Jeremy Fearson was there first, and then Jeff King, uh, Mark Hill, uh, you know, Bruce Batten was there for a long time. And it was just it was just this group of session guys and we would just every every uh gig was like a recording session live. So then when I get to the Alabama gig <clears throat> When did that start? That started in twenty seventeen. Okay. That's um, been a while. I had basically, and Reba had, they had to consolidate two bands together, and that's a long story. But I ended up not being one of the guys, so I thought, okay, well, you know, God's moving me somewhere else. Yeah. So, um, and uh, the Alabama thing, I, I had worked with Teddy in the studio um, several times, and I love love Teddy Gentry. He's he's just the sweetest. He came up to me and said hi to me when I, the first night we were out with y'all, and I was on the side of the stage and kind of waiting, listening to y'all sound check, and he walked right up to me and said, "How are you, young man?" Just, <laughs> I just made a made a beeline, left turn, came yeah. out. I was like, "Well, that's nice." He didn't have to do that. He is the sweetest, most giving. <clears throat> if you were to, here, let me show. If you were to walk up. To Teddy, if you were to walk up to Teddy and say, "Hey, man, I like your shirt," he would take it off and make you take it. That's the kind of person he is. <laughs> he, he's he's the most just the most sweet, gen, genuine, giving person. And um, so, and we worked together in the studio uh, with Charles English. Charles would call me, and and we would do records and stuff. And uh, he always used to say, "Man, if this gig, gig ever opens up, I'm I'm gonna call you." And I'm like, "That would be great." So I got a call. Um, the drummer couldn't make one date in Vegas, so I went and subbed at the Wynn, and it was and it it was the and you think Alabama, that's got to be a really easy gig to play. I mean, because it's just all hits and blah blah blah. No, hmm. hardest gig I've ever played in my life, hmm. um, simply because Randy is a master at working the audience. I've never seen anybody work the audience better than yeah. than, than Randy. Randy Owens, he, he's a genius. And uh, um, so I had to learn not only the song, but all his shtick. Mm -hmm. And I had the worst rehearsal that I've ever had. And then I came back and had the best show. Of, I had the best show that I've ever had. Uh, it was like yin and yang. You know? Well, they say bad rehearsal, good show. <laughs> It was so bad show. I nailed the show, and I did it by the skin of my teeth. And so, the the crazy thing is, I'm I'm up there playing, and we're we're playing feel so right, and all these memories just flood back. And I'm like, this is like my you know, 
my childhood. Mm-hmm. I literally danced to the song at the prom. There were all ages at those gigs. Yeah. Oh yeah. And 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 you talk about a band that has bonded with their audience like nobody. It's Alabama, mm-hmm. which is why you know the guys. You know, Randy's. They're in their seventies and still selling arenas. Yeah. I mean, it's everywhere. Amazing. It's 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 a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, so the thing the thing about playing with Alabama, it's it's so different. It's more of a feel thing, you know, and it's it's more of a you know. And Teddy is Teddy is uh, such a stylistic bass player. Teddy sounds like nobody but Teddy. Mm-hmm. He's a great bass player, and 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 uh, Gordon Moat's been playing with us. So there's a couple of session guys in the band. Uh, Jason Roller's a session guy, and Gordon. Um, but but Alabama is not. It's not a. It's not a surgical thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a throw down the pocket and do a feel thing. So are you you're playing different parts depending on the night sometimes. Yes and no. It, I, I usually play the same parts, but you got to really gauge off of Randy. Yeah, and, and you know Randy. Maybe feeling stuff a little ahead, maybe feeling stuff a little behind, and you just go with them. Yeah. You know the 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 thing I I tell studio drummers is no one's ever going to hear the click yeah, in your right. performance. Right. So and if you play on top of the click and it feels good, dam- the click be damned right. because right. you're never going to hear the click. Right. Right. Um, and the the last thing you want to do is solo up the click and solo up the drums and go see I'm with the click. It doesn't matter. Nobody cares, right? It, it doesn't matter. You know. Because you know you may be dragging your fills going into the phrase because everybody else is 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 kind of kind of humping up and 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 you know playing on top of the beat going into the next chorus and that's normal. Yeah. Go with it. Yeah. So, but the Alabama is is a joy to play with. Uh, uh, every night I sit and smile and play and smile and play and smile and play. Yeah, it's, yeah. You can't help but smile. It's like. 43 number one hits. Well, what's so fun, too, about watching y'all play is a lot of us who who uh, play country music with different people, it's like, we play a lot of those songs. And, like, to watch that the actual band perform. Yeah. And how... And then watch your approach to it is is, is interesting. And it's just like, oh, oh, cool. This is, this is what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah. You know? Now, it, when you talk about approach, in terms of live versus studio... It's quite a bit different. Um, I remember seeing Mark Herndon uh, at play for Alabama, and he would really smack the hi hat really loud. Mm-hmm. And now, playing for him, I understand why, because it's almost like a like a metronome to the band. Yeah. And you do go and do that in the studio, and they're going to run you out the door. That's the problem I had in the studio. Is I mentioned working in the ruckus room with Jamie. Is I was overplaying that hi hat. I mean, yeah. the band I was with, we were playing all the time, and it's like, let's go record a record, and we want you to play drums, and like, cool. And I was overplaying the hi hat. My, my, in my opinion, I, I I did these videos called Five Minute Mondays, and my, what I think is the most important nugget of information is my least watched video, because it's not the sexiest, it's not the tuning, you know, how to tune this and tune that. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's called how to mix yourself in real time. Yeah. And and my going back to Jim DeLong, my drum teacher, he would do this as well. Um, the hi hat is going to bleed into everything. 
it's going to bleed into everything. So what he would do is you're playing your hi-hat real loud and you're playing your snare soft and you're backwards. Yeah. And what you want to do is picture a, a, a console with faders. You're going to turn your hi-hat down to about 40%. And the snare is going to be up at like 89%. Yeah. So I, what I, and this is my biggest beef when I see drummers play live. I immediately start dissecting their, their playing and I'm like, nine times out of ten, it, it never fails. Could you hang out in the dressing room next time we can? <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 uh, the thing that I always get is loud hi-hat, soft snare. Yeah. Smack the crap out of the snare drum mm -hmm. and then play the hi-hat really soft. Mm -hmm. and, and when I'm doing studio work, I, I've had engineer after engineer tell me, um, I never have problems with hi-hat bleed with you. Yeah. And even even doing uh, like an open sloshy Lonnie Wilson hi-hat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, I've, and I've, I've had trouble with that here at the studio, my studio, just getting into everything. Um, you, you use, my rule of thumb is use about half the hi-hat that you think you need. Yeah, yeah. Right. Now live, you can get away with more, but and you found that you needed to with Alabama Live. Yes, yes, but not that much more. I would say <clears throat> maybe 30% more. See, I feel like I have, now I'm the only one, like with the front men that I'm working with who were out with y'all uh, this weekend, and we played with you guys a couple weekends ago. I'm the only one with a click, and most of the guys, everyone else is on wedges. They're eventually going to work their way. It's, it, they're kind of in, uh, in the starting stages, you know, with that. So we're talking about things that we want to do, and trying to wrangle three lead singers that had for years played with their own bands and their own specific drummers are now getting used to me and the backup band that we have there with Link and RK. And how we want to move forward, how much we want to work with the click, what tempos we want, how much we want, not want, you know, just trying to figure out what makes them comfortable mm -hmm. and not strong arm them into, well, this is how it's done, you know be a team player totally, you know, with what they're doing, follow their lead. But they're also open to ideas. Like, we want this to be better. We want this to be better than the band we were in before. Yeah. That kind of thing. And mm -hmm. we're like, cool, let's do it. How do we make this work? But everyone I talk to, it's like, well, it's a strict show. Everyone's on a click. Or I'm the only one on a click. Or there's no click. Yeah. You know, there's no set list. I mean, it, it runs the gamut. Yeah. And there's all the in-betweens. It's a, it's a feel thing. I I've literally gone and changed some of the tempos without being told in the Alabama, which is a no-no. Because, like, the fast part of mountain music, it's like, okay, it's too fast. It's, like, uncomfortably fast. Yeah. I'm going to bring it down. And then the slow part of mountain music, I'm going to bring it up because it feels slow to me. And It's and, so funny you say that because when you guys <clears throat> go to that fast part, I'm like, yeah. that settles in. Yeah. I'm used to playing on Broadway and the fiddle players like and just cranking it out. Yeah. Well, it's got to be musical, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, uh, what you're talking about, I I played in Ricky Skaggs' band for three years and I was the only one that heard the click. Hmm. And, um, it works really good if you've got a really good band that has good time. Yeah. Um, if you've got an, a, a lead singer who takes off like, and I can say that because I'm a lead singer in my own <laughs> band. In my own band, I don't play drums. I play guitar and, and sing. <clears throat> and my son, who's 20, uh, 
he's 25 now. He was my drummer for a long time. And I would keep going, Taylor, pick it up, Taylor, pick it up. And then I'd watch a video of it later on and be like, ooh, he wasn't dragging. I was rushing like a drug racehorse. And uh, that's so interesting. It gives you a new perspective. It gave me a totally new perspective. And it gave me a perspective of <clears throat> what a lead singer wants from a drummer. Mm. Because I would be up there going, okay, you know, because I had a lot of drummers play with us, you know, and that, that had to have been terribly uncomfortable for a drummer to, to come and play drums. I can imagine. To play drums for me. Yeah, yeah. But what, what I really wanted as a lead singer playing guitar is I wanted somebody to lay the law down and and find the right pocket and and uh, and kind of hold me back. And that, that worked for me. And uh, and so I I try to do that and not, you know, because there's a there's a school of thought that well you know if they're going to pick up then just pick it up and go with them and lock with them, yes and no, but if, get out of hand. It, it turns into whack a mole. Yeah. Because then they're gonna they're gonna rush from that then rush from that then rush from that yeah. then then. Yeah. So I work with a band right now that's kind of like that and over the last year I said as I've gotten more comfortable and say if you can come back to me I'll try and meet you somewhere and we can kind of work together. Yeah. And and it's and and we've started to rein it in and it, it was just got to be a trust issue yeah. <clears throat> yeah and before i do a lost hollow gig you know to get my guitar chops i literally have to sit down with an acoustic guitar and my iphone with a click and, and i just play the songs over and over and over again with a click mm. because my tendency is to take off man yeah i yeah. take off and 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 you know my tendency on the drums is to take off so i have to but i've learned to temper that uh, so, and you were talking earlier about sitting back in the pocket. Mm -hmm. there, there's something that's always helped me mm. um, that, that that may help you know your listeners. Um, I have a rule, another rule of thumb: if the singer, if the singer is a great pocket singer, they'll tell you exactly where to play. They'll tell you exactly where that back beat needs to be. Yeah. So, you know, if you've got a singer going, I can listen to that. I know exactly where to put the snare. I see they're not telling you with words. They're telling you with their performance. They're telling you with their feel. Yeah. yeah. Now, if it's somebody that rushes, 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 that rule doesn't apply. <laughs> that, then you turn the click on and you, and you listen to... Now, when I'm in the studio... A lot of people say, well, what do you listen to when you're in the studio? Um, oh, you must turn the bass up. No, that's, I do not turn the bass up. Mm -hmm. I like to listen to the bass. Yeah. But if you look at a master performance with 18 guys, the bass is about, again, we're back to the gym and the slowest thing, the bass is about three milliseconds behind the kick. Mm -hmm. It's almost like the kick is the point of the bass note. Where's the kick? The kick, the kick is on right on the beat, mm -hmm. or maybe teeny bit slight behind it. But the the kick is right on the beat. The bass is right past it. Mm -hmm. If the bass is ahead of it, that's a whole different feel. That's more of a <clears throat> a Muscle Shoals Motown kind of feel, mm -hmm. and that works too. That that's legit. But Nashville, the bass is right right behind it. So I don't listen to the bass because because I'm not going to follow somebody who's following me. Right. In, in Nashville, sorry, the thing that 
uh, the thing that you want married in the studio is the acoustic guitar and the hi-hat. Yes. The acoustic guitar, I tell people, is a hi-hat that plays chords. <laughs> and if the acoustic guitar player is locked with the drummer and the hi-hat, game over. You know, the pocket's there. Um, if the acoustic guitar player is rushing, then then you're going to ha <clears throat> have a mess for the engineer to have to deal with. Yeah. Um, then you've, you've either got a choice. Do I play with a click? Do I rush with the acoustic guitar player? Fortunately for me, in the in the studio world um, and in and the live world, I've got acoustic guitar players that are great. Oh, we were talking about that before. And when I did that session at Ruckus Room, who did I say it was on acoustic? Is it Pat McGrath? Yes. Pat McGrath is a surgeon. I've actually heard Pat phase himself out when he doubles. He's so precise. He was the he was the hottest part of the mix for me. It and rightly so, and it should be because and you know when I when I'm over at the ruckus, the drums sound great in the tuba, <clears throat> but I always turn the acoustic the acoustic up and then pan it off to one side because I want what I'm doing. You know, there, there's a certain emotion to to picking up and to and to breathing with the click. But if the if the acoustic player is not doing that, then oh, it's yeah. going to sound like you're rushing. Yeah. And here's another thing that's interesting, and I learned this. I was on a session with Duncan Mullins, who is a genius bass player at Sony, and we were doing a record. And uh, uh, sometimes when you when you do a take that feels great, you're like, "That's my take, man. That feels fantastic." And then you go back and listen, <clears throat> you'll hear downbeats that that are a little it's like oh I rushed that you know I rushed that kick or I'm dragging them with that kick and and so I was gonna fix and so there's kind of a line of guys fixing stuff and so Duncan said oh, okay take me from the top I'm gonna fix a couple things and so I heard a couple kick notes that really bothered me and so Duncan goes and he fixes and all of a sudden and I heard that spot and it was like I'll be damned it's perfect <laughs> it's perfect yeah it wasn't me and so I've learned mm -hmm. there's a there's a thing and, and having a studio at the house you get to sit in front of waveforms and teach yourself a lot of stuff oh my gosh yes one of the things is if the acoustic player rushes a downbeat it doesn't make the acoustic player sound like he's rushing it makes the kick drum sound late yeah yeah. If the acoustic player drags a downbeat, it doesn't make the acoustic player sound like he's dragging the downbeat. It makes the kick drum sound like it's rushed. Yeah. And so I've learned you don't automatically assume that that's you because it may not be you. Mm -hmm. Because then, you know, then I also I'll have the I'll have the uh, the engineer solo up the drums and play that little section. Solo up the drum and it feels great. Yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. So, but the the ear plays tricks on you, and so a lot of times I've had to like doing records here at the house. Sometimes I'll have to move a downbeat of an acoustic guitar or something like that, or an electric guitar or whatever. Um, it, it's 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 like an audio oral illusion. Yeah. You know because it makes the kick sound wrong, mm -hmm. but it's not the kick. Right. I'd say in eighty percent of the time I've I've learned not to be so hard on myself because I, my, my first thought is oh, I screwed it up you know mm -hmm. 
So I think the same thing applies when we're talking about playing live. If you're the only one with a click and just trying to keep something solid, mm -hmm. you know, I'm gonna eat a cracker for somebody. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's 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 I. It is really interesting. I, I remember years ago when I talking to Steve Eby and sharing some tracks that I recorded with him, and he goes. Well, sometimes it's not always you. Sometimes it's the rest of the band that makes it. I said, this sounds drag. You know, why does it sound so draggy? He goes, I don't think it's you. I think it's Not always. But that's the tricky thing about... Or maybe it's just being super nice. <laughs> well, that's the tricky thing about recording. And that's why, as a session player, um, you get used to the same guys or the equivalent of the same guys always being there always feels good, feels, you know, feels mm -hmm. pretty much the same. And then every now and then, a writer will bring in his road acoustic player or something, or his road bass player. Yeah. You know, to give him some experience. And, you know, I get that. You know, everybody's got to have a shot. And they're playing along thinking, I, I'm locking right in with these guys. The, the guys that do this every day are so in tune with that click and so in tune with their time that it to them it sounds like this guy is about 30 milliseconds ahead. Yeah. And, and you know, a lot of people don't understand that's why you put session players in there because, you know, time is money, There's, the clock's running, the guys are getting paid, the studio's getting paid, the engineer's getting paid. And you don't have time to go in there and learn. You know, it's got to be boom, 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 get these tracks done. Yeah, yeah. It's a tough thing, man. And it's a, a friend of mine moved to town a, a while ago, about seven years ago now. But when, remember when he first moved to town and I was talking to a buddy of mine. I said, you know, he, he he's a great producer and he does some engineering. And, and a friend of mine, he goes, well, speed. He's got to be fast. This town... It's not like any other town. There's another drummer, a great New Orleans drummer, who, he goes, when I do sessions in New Orleans, it's one way. When I do sessions in Nashville, it's, it's like completely different. It blows people's minds. Yeah, and it's great, great musicians, both places, but, the, but I have to adjust. My brain has to adjust, and I imagine every scene is different. It freaks people out. Um, I've had people come from Europe, uh, London, Sweden, uh, Canada, New York, mm -hmm. LA, wherever. They they come to Nashville, and so they they pass out the chart. They start playing the work tape, and the producer is expecting everybody just to intently be focused, and you know, and guys are like listening, sort of half listening. First chorus, sort of half talking right. about football. <laughs> hey, did you see the Titans the other day? Oh yeah, you know, and then it kind of puts people off. Yeah. They get to the end of the song and they're like, "Well, they they weren't listening at all." And then uh, the producer goes, "Hey, I want this to be somewhere between Tom Petty and whatever, you know." Yeah. And and the electric player go, "Hey, play that intro one more time." Just, okay, yeah, I got it. They go in there. Ch -ch -ch -ch. Okay, count it off. Boom, it's done. Yeah. It's perfect. And and uh, you know even Gordon Moat, we're talking about Gordon Moat. Um, mm -hmm. Gordon's blind. Mm -hmm. You know, and and Gordon will be in there. Uh, you know, and he doesn't obviously read charts, uh, and he's half talking about college football or something. And the guy's like, you know, and then he goes in there and plays it perfect. It's like it's not like the guys ha aren't listening. Yeah, yeah. 
it's that I sat down one day to try to figure out how many sessions I've played, and it's somewhere between seven and ten thousand. Jeez. And and if you figure five songs on the demo session, one to two on a master session, so you start averaging that up. It's like thirty-five thousand songs. Once you've done something thirty-five thousand times, right, right, you don't have to wring your hands and know what to do. They know right. what to do. Right. You know these guitar players. That's why it's good to talk to you, man. <laughs> you know, kind of like cut cut some of that time in half, especially yeah. now that we have access to recording at home. Yeah. To try and practice that, and what you were saying about write your own songs. Play to your own songs. That's brilliant, man. Yeah. Because you learn... I mean, this last couple of years, recording more at home and being stuck at home during part of that time, I've learned so much about my playing. And then to actually go do a real session mm-hmm. was like, whoa, this is kind of interesting. Yeah. You know? It's a it's a learning curve. I mean, it's a yeah. big, learning, it's a big curve. learning curve. Yeah. And over, over 22 years of doing it, I've been able to... I've been able to try different things, try different approaches, try different listening approaches. Well, you can experiment too within your home space because again, time is money. So there's no time to experiment. You've got to go in and know what you're doing. Yeah, you have to, but you're going to get different situations. You're you're going to get uh, some rooms that only have a two two mix and you may have an engineer that mixes the drums really low. Yeah. So it's like, what are you going to do? Yeah. So you got to. So have, I. So so that would be that would be appealing to me. I like the drums low. I like to hear everything else. Yeah. But then somebody. But but it's going to be yeah. If it's just that kind of. If you don't have control of your own mix, then you're yeah. just like, how do I make this work? Well, and there there I, I've got about four different approaches, um, and honestly, I, every now and then you get in a situation where for whatever reason this particular tempo is one that you want to take about five clicks faster. Exactly. And so, literally, if I want to play slower, mm-hmm. I turn the headphone mix down. Oh. Because then I can hear myself more in the room, mm. and then I literally can hear myself playing on top. So, um, if, if I find myself edging towards playing ahead of the other guys and where it's not feeling good... Um, I'll take an ear off, I'll, I'll turn the headphone mix down, and I'll turn the click up, because the louder the click is, the more back I play. Mm-hmm. Um, if I turn the click way down, I have a tendency to skate more on top of it. And both mm-hmm. are legit things. It's like, it really, uh, again, depends on what it ends up with. You know, what, what is your end product? Because you're not going to be listening with the click. Yeah. So. No, that's great. So... I mean, this has been awesome, man. I feel like we've covered so much ground. I do want to mention, again, the group that you, that Lost Hollow Band, the duo you have with your wife. LostHollowBand.com, and we're on Spotify. Uh, Check us out. Uh, We're getting ready to start working on the new record. Mm -hmm. And uh, got a couple songs already done, and I'm excited. Super great. And you're out with Alabama, which has been fun. I think... Next year, they're talking about maybe the front men doing more shows with you guys so I, I get to so, watch yeah. you play and, yeah. and stuff. It was super fun. Um, this has been a last-minute interview. You've been on my list for a long, long time. I've known of you for so long. I didn't recognize you when, when we saw each other a couple weeks ago, but um, 
I thank you so much for doing this, man. So much information, so many nuggets. It's been great. Great to see your studio. I feel like I'm walking away, my head is full. <laughs> um, in a I good way. In a, in a good way, yeah, in, in a good way. But I can't thank you enough. Uh, it's funny, I, 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 I say, oh, okay, see you later, but I, I will see you yeah. this weekend. Um, thanks, Steve. Thank you. All right, there you go, my conversation with Tommy Harden. I so appreciate him finding time in his schedule last minute to sit down and talk to me. There was so much great stuff uh, from our conversation and uh, just lots of uh, studio and performance hacks that I think we can all use. In previous episodes, I mentioned that we were going to have a conversation with drummer Rob Rufus, who has an incredible book that I've been reading called Die Young With Me. Unfortunately, due to some things that were out of his control, we were not able to get together. But hopefully in the future, we can have him on this podcast and we can talk about his incredible story. So stay tuned for that. But so much thanks to Tommy Harden for being uh, with us this week. And I hope you really enjoyed that. I'm going to be seeing him this weekend with the band Alabama again as the group I'm working with is opening up for him. It's just so fun and educational just to sit side stage and and watch him work. Next week, we're going to take a little bit of a break during uh, Thanksgiving. And then uh, in a couple weeks, uh, we will be bringing back Zach Albetta. And uh, so I'm excited to have him back on board with us and hosting this podcast. But for now, everyone, stay safe. Thanks so much for listening. If you can, get vaxxed. And hope to see you around. Bye-bye.